Hello everyone and welcome to the American Civil War and UK History Channel on YouTube. Remember, we have a page on Facebook and Instagram as well. So go and give it a look. Lots coming up in the future. When uh, restrictions start being eased, I'll be allowed to go out and I'll be able to film lots of great stuff. So where are we? So yesterday it was the 6th of April. Today is the 7th. So it is the second day of the Battle of Shiloh. So I am going to try and explain that to you. So here goes. So where are we? So from yesterday, obviously, the Union Army have been pushed back into a defensive line and defensive position around Pittsburgh Landing. Um, now, the commander of the Confederate Army now, um, PGT Beauregard, has sent a message back to Davis saying that they have won and that they can finish the job in the morning. Um, but overnight, Grant has been reinforced. Of course, Lou Wallace arrived in the evening. Um, most of Buell's army has arrived now. So they are in a very strong position. Um, and it's, there's a bit more fighting to come, but they're in a very good, strong position. Okay, let's do it. So, overnight, though, on the 6th, something else important happens. So overnight, heavy cannon fire from the Union Timberclads, Tyler and Lexington. This was ordered by Grant to damage Confederate morale. So from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., Tyler fired around every 10 minutes. And then after 1 a.m., the Lexington took over and this continued throughout the night. So again, Grant orders this um, and it, you know, it's going to definitely damage morale, isn't it? If you're being uh, shot at all night, it don't, don't seem like anybody would have got any sleep anyway, if that racket's going on all night. So, yeah. Um, so April the 7th, 1862, it's a Monday morning. Um, the Union Command, as of yesterday, the same you have Ulysses S. Grant in command of the Army of the Tennessee, and you have Don Carlos Buell, who is in charge of the Army of the Ohio. And again, in charge of the Confederate Army now, after the death of Sidney Johnson yesterday, is P.G.T. Beauregard. And again, like I said, they're in this defensive position, and they've been reinforced by not just Lou Wallace, but Buell's army as well. And the Confederate command is the same as yesterday. We have first corps under the command of Leonardo's Polk. Second corps, everyone's favorite general, Mr. Major General Braxton Bragg. Third corps, William J. Hardy. And John C. Breckenridge yesterday was part of the reserve corps, but his whole corps is up now and he is in charge of that part. The Union have been reinforced, like I said, by the Army of the Ohio, so they are all fresh and ready for action. But um, some of them would have probably been, you know, forced march to the battlefield. Again, pretty much the same as yesterday, but obviously you've got the addition of some of the guys from the Army of the Ohio. So, Starting here, you have McClelland, 
Hellbutt, um, Sherman, and Lou Wallace. And then, of course, you have McCook, Crittenden, Wood, and Ball Nelson for the Army of the Ohio. So that's the two armies again. So the Confederates had had suffered as many as 8,500 casualties on the first day. The Confederates had withdrawn south into Prentice's and Sherman's camps. Whilst Polk's corps retired to the Confederate bivouac established on the 5th of April, which was four miles southwest. So they didn't go back to the camp. They went back to their original place four miles down the road. Um, so no line of battle was formed. And not many commands, commanders, sorry, were resupplied with ammunition. That doesn't make sense, does it? You know, if you're going to fight the next day, you need to be resupplied. The, the, the soldiers were consumed by the need to locate food, water and shelter for a much night, needed night's rest. Now, they're probably absolutely knackered. I mean, they're knackered on both sides, but then you've got the fresh troops on the Union side as well. But I'm talking about Grant's guys, you know. Anyway. Beauregard, unaware that he was now outnumbered, planned to continue the attack and drive Grant into the river. To his surprise, Union forces started moving forward in a massive counterattack at dawn. So they get up at dawn and Grant just says, come on, we've got to do this. So Grant and Buell launched their attack separately. Coordination occurred only at division level. Lou Wallace's division was the first to see action at about 5.30 a.m. at the extreme right of the Union line. So over here is where the battle starts on the 7th. Wallace continued to advance. On Wallace's left, where the survivors of Sherman's division and McClellan's division and WHL Wallace's, now under the command of Colonel James M. Turtle, on the left, Buell's army. So over this side is Buell's army. Um, you have Crittenden and McCook's divisions. The Confederates had no command above brigade level. It took more than two hours to locate General Polk and bring up his division from his bivouac to the southwest. So him moving four miles. I mean, who, who let him do that, you know? I mean, they're there, they're on the battlefield and, you know, I don't, that, that, that doesn't make sense, does it? Moving part of your army four miles down the road when you're actually technically still engaged with the enemy, but there you go. So he's still southwest, so he's got to get up. He doesn't get there till 10 a.m. Beauregard stabilised his front with his corps commanders from left to right. So again, so this is how they were lined up from left to right. You had Bragg, Polk, Breckenridge and Hardy. Hardy in the thicket near the Hampton Purdy Road. The fighting was so intense. So Hardy was over here in this area here. So it was so, so intense. Sherman describes in his report of battle, the severest musketry that I have ever heard. On the Union left, Nelson's division led the advance, followed closely by 
Crittenden and McCook's men down the Corinth and Hamburg Savannah roads after heavy fighting Crittenden's division recaptured the Hornet's Nest area by late morning. But Crittenden and Nelson's forces were repulsed by determined counterattacks from Breckenridge. <clears throat> Excuse me. Wallace's and Sherman's men on the Union right made steady progress driving Bragg and Polk to the south. As Crittenden and McCook resumed their attacks, Breckenridge was forced to retire. By noon, Beauregard's line paralleled the Hamburg-Purdy road. In early afternoon, Beauregard launched a series of counterattacks from Shiloh Church area, aiming to control the Corinth Road. Now, this is their way out of here. You know, they need this road to get out back down to Corinth. The Union right was temporarily driven back by these assaults. Crittenden reinforced by Turtle seized the junction of Hamburg-Purdy and East Corinth Road, driving the Confederates into Prentice's old camps. By late afternoon, Beauregard's final counterattack was flanked and repulsed when Grant moved the brigade forward. So Grant later, and I'm going to get onto this now. So Grant later wrote of a close call him and his staff officers had during the fighting in which they personally came under heavy fire. So this is what he writ. During this second day of the battle, I had been moving from right to left and back to see for myself the progress made. In, early, in the early part of the afternoon, whilst riding with Colonel McPherson and Captain Hawkins, then my chief commissary, we got beyond the left of our troops. We were moving along the northern edge of a clearing, very leisurely towards the river, above the landing. There did not appear to be any enemy on our right until suddenly a battery of musketry opened upon us from the edge of the woods. On the other side of the clearing, the shells and the balls whistled about our ears very fast for about a minute. I do not think it took us longer than that to get out of range and out of sight. In the sudden start we made. Captain Hawkins lost his hat. He did not stop to pick it up. When we arrived at the perfectly safe position, we halted to take an account of the damages. McPherson's horse was panting as it was ready to drop, as if, sorry, it was ready to drop. On examination, it was found that a ball had struck forward of the flank, just back of the saddle, and had gone entirely through. In a few minutes, the poor beast dropped dead. He had given no sign of injury until we come to a stop. A ball had struck the metal scabbard of my sword just below the hilt and broke it nearly off. Before the battle was over, it had broken off entirely. There were three of us. One had lost a horse. Sorry, yeah. One had lost a horse, killed. One a hat and one a sword scabbard. We were all thankful that it was no worse. So imagine that experience. Great that it was written down and explained. You definitely wouldn't have gone back and got your hat. That's for sure. So realising that he had lost the initiative, 
Now, excuse me, I'll just go back. So realizing that he'd lost the initiative and was low on ammunition and food and had more than 10,000 of his men killed, wounded or missing, Beauregard could go no further. He withdrew beyond Shiloh Church, leaving 5,000 men under Breckenridge as a covering force and mass Confederate batteries at the church and on the ridge south of Shiloh Branch. Confederate forces kept the Union men in position on the Corinth Road until 5 p.m. Then began an orderly withdrawal southwest to Corinth. The exhausted Union soldiers did not pursue much further than the original, so, sorry, than, than originally Sherman and Prentice encampments. Lou Wallace's division crossed Shiloh Branch and advanced nearly two miles but received no support from other units and was recalled. There, returned to Sherman's camp at dark. Sorry, they returned to Sherman's camp at dark and the battle was over. <clears throat> now, casualties. Now, up to this point, this was, I mean, you had the Battle of Bull Run, yes, and that shocked people. But this really shocked people, the amount of casualties. So in total, altogether, it was around about 23,000 people. Um, it's horrendous. I mean, this is killed, wounded and missing. This is not just dead. And when people hear casualties and they hear the numbers, they always assume that that's killed. That's not killed. That's just casualties. But, you know, um, you put that into perspective, you know, that's a lot of people, isn't it? You know, and the, the people had never seen this amount of losses before. So you can imagine the shock when they read the papers and they read these numbers. For long afterwards, Grant and Buell quarreled over Grant's decision not to mount an immediate pursuit with another hour of daylight remaining. Grant cried that exhaustion of his troops, although the Confederates were certainly just as exhausted, part of Grant's reluctance to act could have been the unusual command relationship he had with Buell. They they just didn't get on, you know. They're two they're two generals, you know. I mean, this is Grant's area anyway. So Buell's come over with his army. This is the area. This is his department, isn't it? Grant's department. So he was always going to be senior anyway. And although Grant was senior, the senior officer, and technically was in command of both armies, Buell made it quite clear throughout the two day that he was acting independently. So basically anything Grant told him, he apparently didn't even listen to. Now, there are a couple of things I'd like to discuss now the battle is over. And I know this was a shorter video and I know a lot more went on on the 7th, but I don't want people to get bored. So I kept it trying, kept it short and sort of glossed over what happened. But, <clears throat> First thing I'd like, well, there's a couple of things I'd like to discuss. Two things in, in particular from the Battle of Shiloh. One being Albert Sidney Johnston, obviously. And the other being the unfair criticism Grant <clears throat> gets from the press. And there is one particular newspaper, and that is the Cincinnati Daily Gazette. But at first, there was another guy who managed to get the news report, and he literally rushed from the battlefield and it was for a New York newspaper. And he managed to get his report into the newspaper first. And that was great because it was a good, but it was just a gloss over of the battle because he, he was in such a rush to get to Fort Donaldson to get this wired back to New York. 
anyway, this news report got printed and it and it was jubilation. You know, the, the North have won this great victory. The news story said things about Grant riding on his horse, charging his sword. And, you know, and again, remember, people believe what the press said back then. You know? They take it for gospel. And uh, so but then a couple of days later, this particular guy prints a news report, which completely says a different story. So, and like I was saying, now we have to remember how powerful the press was back then. Most people that read the papers would have taken it as gospel. And uh, what was written after the battle? Grant got a lot of stick, even though they had won this great victory. And let's not beat around the bush. This is a massive victory. This sets the tone for the Western theatre. And yes, there are other big battles to come and victories. But this makes these two armies, this experience really makes this Western army what it becomes later on in the war. They learn lessons from Shiloh. And this will help them better prepare themselves for what's to come. Now, I could, I, I've read an account as well that before the Battle of Shiloh, um, I know Sherman has always said from the beginning that this was going to be a long war. But Grant fought uh, slightly differently. And he thought that a heavy defeat here would, you know, more, not finish the war, but it wouldn't drag on so long if they could get a good victory here. Um, but after this, he did admit that this is going to be a long drawn out war. I don't think he expected the Confederates to fight as fiercely as they did. Now, again, like I was saying, the first news report was good, but very vague, and it put the country in a good mood. But a few days later, a report hits the newspapers by a reporter of the name of Whitelaw Reed of the Cincinnati Gazette, starting with damning rumours of drunkenness. And it's they've got to bring this up all the time. You know, Grant was drunk. Grant's on the bottle. Grant was never on the bottle. Grant had the odd little tipple now and then. Um, Rawlings, his chief of staff, was completely against drink. And I was reading um, Bruce Catton's uh, book, Grant Goes South. And in that, it says that Rowling's ruling, sorry, would have never of stayed on Grant's staff if he thought he was a drunkard. And there's absolutely no way he was drunk at the Battle of Shiloh. And he was not a drunkard. Yes, he had, you know, his skeletons in the closet from when he was um, out in California um, down to boredom. But he's a family man. He loves his man, uh, loves his family. Sorry. So, you know. He, he hit the bottle at that point. But, um, you know, it's unfair, really. So that's put into the papers. Of course, people believe this, you know, people pick up this newspaper and think this general's a drunkard. Well, that's not true. It was also said in this news report that men and officers were just getting out of bed washing. So basically they were completely caught with their pants down, literally, and that some were even shot and bayoneted in their beds while they slept. This is untrue as well. This is not true. But the North, the people reading these papers, believe these stories. And also it says that Prentice had surrendered by 10 a.m. 
Well, we know that's not true because they held out for seven hours. So this is complete tabloid spin. You know, also a number of politicians called for Grant's head. Governor David Todd of Ohio, as well as senior, uh, sorry, Senator Benjamin Wade of Ohio, Todd said Grant and Sherman were guilty of criminal negligence. Well, excuse me for winning a big battle. He had also said that Grant didn't arrive until the fighting was over. Well, that's funny because this guy arrived on the same steamer as Grant. He watched Grant get off at Pittsburgh Landing. So that cracks me up. But again, what is bad about this is people believe this. And this just shows you how powerful the press is. A bit like social media of today. You get this rubbish put on social media and people straight away believe it. And again, the drunkenness, you know, it's always going to live with Grant, isn't it, throughout the war and throughout until recently, you know, the Lost Calls writers, you know, like to bring up the old drunkenness, you know, and the butcher rubbish, you know. Anyway, that's enough about Grant. Let's talk about Albert Sidney Johnston. So Albert Sidney Johnston is the big what if. Just like Stonewall Jackson, if Stonewall Jackson hadn't have died, he would have ridden to Gettysburg and he would have defeated the Union by himself. We will never know. And this is the same thing. What if? What if Sidney Johnson doesn't get shot? What if Sidney Johnson stays alive? Big things are, are thought about Sidney Johnson by Davis. They think he is going to be the Robert E. Lee of the West. You know, he is the only full major general in the West at the time. And after this battle, they cannot find anyone. They cannot find anyone capable of leading an army. So I'd love to know what you guys think. Do you think if Albert Sidney Johnson had stayed alive, they'd have won, firstly, the Battle of Shiloh, and two, maybe the outcome of the war would have been different because you've got Robert E. Lee giving the Army of the Potomac a hard time in the East. Maybe it would have been different in the West. We don't know. I'd love to know what people think about that because that is another one of those big what-ifs, isn't it? Now, I just want to give a couple of big shout-outs because, obviously... You know, so I've done a lot of research and, and read a couple of books during this time, obviously. And one of those was, uh, so I actually listened to this one. So this was an audio book, but you can get this. Is, and it's and it's one of the easy, it's one of the Emergency Civil War series books. And if you're not familiar with the Emergency Civil War series, it's very good. Um, I mean, their books are absolutely brilliant. They get the top historians that write these books. Um, they're not just books, they're guides as well. So if you actually buy the physical copy, you could go to the Battle of Shiloh or the uh, site on uh, uh, Pittsburgh landing there where the battlefield is. And you could, this will guide you around, you know, it takes you to the important spots. Bruce Catton, on the other hand, um, well, what a writer. I mean, I'm hooked on his books. I really am. I'm, I'm now actually, so I'm going from, so I started with Grant Move South. I didn't read the first one because I'm more interested in the Civil War part of Grant's life. So I started with Grant Move South. Now I've moved on to Army of the Potomac, which is another Bruce Catton one. And then I shall go on to the other one after that. And then I will move back to the West for Grant Takes Command. But yeah, Bruce Catton, amazing historian, as, as most Civil War buffs will know. But his writing is amazing. 
I can't say enough about this guy. But also Emergency of War. So Gregory A. Mertz, who uh, wrote this book for Emergency of War, and who just recently retired, so um, for, uh, being a park ranger. So happy retirement, Greg. Your book is brilliant. Thank you very much. So, yeah, uh, what I will do is I'll put links below um, to, for Emerging Civil War, particularly in particularly in this book. Again, this is available on Audible as well as an audio book. Um, Grant Move South, obviously, just Google it. You'll find it somewhere. Um, a, a lot of Grant, you know, Grant fanboys will tell you that Bruce Catton is one of the best writers of the Civil War history. Anyway, guys, I hope you really enjoyed my video. I love doing them. I love talking about the Civil War because, like I've told you in the past, I've got no one to talk to about it. So it gets that frustration out of me. I get to talk about it to myself and then you get to watch it. So remember, come and look at our Facebook page. I've got lots in the pipeline. Um, again, we're under still under COVID restrictions in the UK, which doesn't allow us to go indoors. But as of the um, middle of May, restrictions are being lifted again. So hopefully I'll be able to go because I did put pictures up at Dover Castle the other day. I'll be able to go inside and we'll go and have a look at Henry II's throne room. But yeah, so I hope you enjoyed it all. Everything will be down below. Don't forget to subscribe. Thank you very much.